Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Coming up on a special edition of Detroit Today, we've got physicians on hand to answer your medical questions about coronavirus. What kinds of things should you be doing to take precautions? And what kinds of things should you be avoiding? Also, what about symptoms? What should you do if you fear you have coronavirus or if a loved one does? We've got all of that next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. p.m. instead of our regular 9 a.m. We are giving you an extra opportunity to call in and share how you're doing in this time of uncertainty and anxiety over the spread of a deadly viral disease in our world. Today, we're going to take your calls and your comments and your questions about COVID-19. Joining us this hour are two doctors, each of whom offers a unique perspective. A bit later in the hour, we'll be joined by Dr. Raquel Orlick, a family doctor at Plum Health, direct primary care in Corktown. But first up is Dr. Ann Messman, an ER physician at a Detroit hospital. Dr. Messman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, you are an ER doctor, and uh, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on today to talk with our listeners is that you're on the front lines of this battle every day inside hospitals. And I think for a lot of us, fortunately, we're not seeing that. We're not there. We're not uh, involved at that level. But I do think it would be really good and very interesting for our listeners to hear just a little about what a day looks like inside an emergency room right now. I, I know how different it is from from friends of mine who work in emergency rooms who've, who've been telling me about it. Um, but I wonder if, if you would like to share just some of what is going on and how extraordinarily different it is than what the world looked like just 10 or 12 days ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in the emergency department, we are very accustomed to having critically ill patients, and um, part of the nature of the job is you, you never know what's going to be walking in the door. That's sort of what what we like about the job is, is how unexpected things can be. It keeps us on our toes. Um, and, and on a typical day, pre-coronavirus, you would get, um, you know, a whole range of patients, some of them you know, really are just using the emergency department as a primary care facility and they just need a, a refill of their blood pressure medications or something like that, um, all the way to the critically ill patients having strokes and heart attacks and, you know, trauma, gunshot wounds, those sorts of things. So we're used to a wide range. Um, one of the things that's very, very different right now is that that range has, has narrowed significantly and, um the people that we're seeing are, on average, much more sick than 
what we're used to. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, we're not getting these minor complaints, people that are using us as a primary care office. So um, patients are requiring much more um, attention. They're much more critically ill. Uh, we're spending more time and resources on the patients that we're seeing. Um, and we're doing things that we've never had to do before, like, you know, push, put a patient on life support on a ventilator, but then there's no critical care area to put them because the critical care area is already full. So they are infiltrating the main part of the emergency department, which really isn't designed to monitor patients that are that severely ill. So, you know, we're all doing the very best that we can, and everyone who's there um, wants to help and is doing incredible work, um, but we are being stretched in ways that are very different than our, our usual day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Ann Messman, an ER doctor at a Detroit hospital. We've got her here this hour to answer your medical questions. And if you have questions about coronavirus, about things you should or shouldn't be doing, uh, about symptoms, things uh, of that nature, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Also, as always here on Detroit Today, give us a call and just uh, let us know how you're doing. I know for so many of us, this is so different, and there are so many disruptions and adaptations that uh, we are being asked to make. Uh, give us a call and tell us uh, how, you're, how you're managing that, how your kids are managing that, how your family is managing that. What are you doing to try to feel connected to the rest of the world now that all of us are being asked to stay at home all of the time uh, now that our kids are out of school and things like that what kinds of things have you come up with that make you feel normal what kinds of things have you come up with that make you feel like uh, we're not living through maybe one of the darkest times that any of us can remember again 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones uh, and i before we get to listeners, can you give us a sense of of the 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 sort of human dimension of this tragedy and and the toll that it's taking on people, not just those who are sick, but those who are with those who are sick, right? I mean, you've got to have family members who are either bringing people. To the emergency room or there with them uh, as they're sick and in some cases uh, are dying. That's also got to be a really difficult part of, uh, of what we're living through. Yeah, um, so most hospitals, if not all in the area, have enacted policies where visitors are not allowed, um, no matter what the complaint is, you know, even if they're there for something that's not related to potential COVID-19 infection, they are still not allowed in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So I've seen, you know, husbands dropping their wives off, not knowing, you know, if they're going to see them alive ever again. Um, And a lot of patients are coming in by ambulance. And uh, so their families, we never physically get to see them, even in the waiting room. Um, And so we're having to have very, very difficult Uh, discussions about um, end-of-life decisions over the phone, you know, with people that that don't know us. They don't know if we're good doctors or bad doctors. Um, And it's really 
changed our practice now that we're trying to establish relationships over the phone. And it's truly devastating to have these patients that are critically ill that don't have a loved one there holding their hand to comfort them um, while they're they're sick and in some cases while they're dying. So that's it's hard for the family. It's first and foremost, um, and it's hard for us to watch because there's we're totally helpless in that. Yeah, and and for you uh, as an ER doctor, uh, talk about the toll. Talk about the toll it's taking. I mean, this is very different work than you are used to, and the work that you're used to normally is not easy. I would imagine emotionally, but but this is something altogether different. Yeah, I would say that there's been um, a lot of ups and downs. Um, there's moments where you just you feel a tremendous honor to be at work and uh, trying to help. I know I know that people that are stuck at home often feel very helpless and they want to do things. And we actually have the opportunity to go in and uh, try our best to help these patients. And so sometimes you feel just tremendously proud. Um, you feel a lot of solidarity with your co-workers um, and so that sometimes oddly can be very happy and very fulfilling um, but then when you see how sick a lot of our patients are that some of them are are dying alone um, you know that that they didn't have any time to make final words to their family and you realize that this is not going to end anytime soon um, then that can be really devastating so I would say you know, those are the highs and lows, and then you're experiencing everything in between on a daily basis. So it, it's just a lot of um, instability, I would say, emotionally during this time. Yeah. Well, we, of course, are all very grateful for the work that uh, first responders like yourself are doing right now. And uh, it's very hard to imagine just how you're you're managing through that and, and what comes next. I mean, I think that's the the thing that in the back of all of our minds is really pressing right now is that things don't seem like they're likely to get better in the short term. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's get to the listeners with Lisa in Milford. Lisa, what's on your mind? Yeah, I have a question. Um, I am sheltering in place at home alone. I live alone. And I have other friends who are doing the same. They're off of work for one reason or another. Um, is it still recommended to not go visit? You mean just go visit one person, in yeah. other words, right? Uh, somebody yeah. else who's also been sheltering in place. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question, Lisa. Uh, Ann Messman, they're telling us to stay at home in order to stay safe. But if everybody is at home and has been for many days or at this point more than a week, is there a risk if you just want to get some sort of human contact to go and sit with a friend for a while in their house or uh, or vice versa? I, at this point, the recommendation would still stand to stay at home and not physically go go visit one another. I have seen people get creative where one person will stay inside the house and they'll open up a window and the other person will be sitting, you know, 10 mm -hmm. feet away mm -hmm. uh, outdoors. I, I think those sorts of things are fine. But 
there's so much we don't know yet about COVID-19 infection and coronavirus. Uh, For example, one of the things we don't really know about are what are called asymptomatic carriers. Mm -hmm. So people that are harboring the virus typically in their nose, but they don't have any symptoms. What we don't know is uh, how to identify these people um, and are they out there spreading it. So I think that once we get more answers about that, we'll be able to answer those sorts of questions better. But we just don't have the information right now to say that that is definitely a safe thing to do. So uh, at this point, we would still recommend staying apart, unfortunately. Um, I've gotten very accustomed at this point to doing um, Google Hangouts and, um, you know, whatever whatever video chat thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these are not things that I had ever done in my previous life. And it's, it's really not that bad. It, it feels a lot like just hanging out with your friends and yeah. you can have cocktail hour or whatever you want to do. Um, that would be the recommendation at this point. Yeah. Lisa, I can hear in your voice just the the, the desperation at this point for human contact. And, and I yeah. absolutely understand that and share it. And I think it's one of the hardest parts of what we're living through. But uh, as Dr. Messman says, um, it's, it's, we're not ready to, to test that, 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 that barrier, that limit yet. And so we, we do need to, to try to stay away from each other. But Lisa, I appreciate you listening and I appreciate, uh, appreciate the call. Let's go to Chuck in Dearborn who has kind of a related question about asymptomatic carriers. Uh, Chuck, welcome to yeah. the program. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, it is indeed uh, somewhat related to the doctor's previous response. And my question would be, we hear about these individuals who are asymptomatic. They can spread nonetheless. Uh, So is the asymptomatic status a terminus in this process, or do they proceed to be symptomatic and become more ill? Or do we even know simply because we when when someone is asymptomatic, we don't know to study that population and determine what, what might occur. Uh, great question, Chuck. It's one of the questions that I've had for a bit about about coronavirus. And I would actually extend that question to not just asymptomatic uh, carriers, but people who get uh, coronavirus, live through the illness, and then are healthy uh, again, um, th- this question of immunity and and how long you might be able to infect others, I think, is still uh, one of the things that we don't quite understand everything about. But let's let's start with with Chuck's question: Does everyone who's asymptomatic end up with some sort of illness related to coronavirus? These are great questions. Um, and like I said, I'm an emergency room doctor. I'm not a, you know, a researcher. I'm just reading, you know, the medical journals and articles that, that you know, a lot of us physicians are reading. So I'm going to give you the best answer that I have based on my knowledge. Um, so asymptomatic carriers typically by definition don't get sick. Um, that's, you know, the asymptomatic part. If, if they were to be a, a carrier and harbor the disease and then get sick, that would be more more of an expected response you know that's typically what happens with illness is that you carry it for a couple days before it expresses itself Um, so asymptomatic carriers by definition will remain asymptomatic um, and potentially spread the disease 
Um, and I want to point out also, this is not unique to coronavirus. A lot of um, illnesses, MRSA, which has been out in the media for some years now, MRSA is another thing that people can harbor in their noses and carry around and never have any symptoms, but can spread it to other people. So this isn't unique to coronavirus. It's it's a known thing that we see with a lot of other mm. viruses and bacteria. Mm. And, and my question about uh, people who get coronavirus and have symptoms, maybe mild symptoms, maybe even severe symptoms, but come out the other side and are healthy again, uh, are they at risk for recontracting the disease? In other words, if they're exposed again, could you get sick again? But also, how long are they able to spread the disease even after they're not showing symptoms anymore? Yeah, these are million-dollar questions that people are, are looking into. Um, so we don't entirely know yet if people can get reinfected. Uh, coronavirus is very smart, and it has mutated several times. So the concern would be that perhaps you have immunity to one version of the coronavirus, and if it mutates, are you still immune to the new version? Mm -hmm. Or did it mutate in such a way that now you can get reinfected with that type of coronavirus? Um, so that's a question that needs to be answered. And then the other point about how long are you infectious for, um, there have been some studies looking at how long people shed the virus, even once they're, they've combated successfully combated the disease. And it was variable. So some people, they were testing their noses and finding out that within a few days of, of having beaten the disease and not having symptoms, they stopped shedding. And others, it was beyond even a month that they were still shedding the virus. Um, what's not clear is when you're shedding, are you, you know, infecting other people or is that more innocuous? And we don't entirely know the answer. Um, they are coming out with some antigen blood testing to see if you have been exposed to the disease. Um, and that has some implications, not just for knowing that you've been exposed, but uh, they want people potentially to start donating their plasma or donating their blood if they have successfully combated the disease so that we can transfuse it into patients um, that have severe disease. Uh, and so that's antibody testing is going to be um, sort of playing a role in, in that research as well. Hmm. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Chuck, for the call and the, the really great question. Let's go to Leslie in Highland Park. Leslie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. I was calling because um, I'm 71. I'm normally, I normally live alone, but my sister was here uh, from December 14th to December, I'm sorry, not December, March 14th to March 20th for her daughter's wedding. Uh, she returned home and found out that she was positive for the virus. And uh, her daughter, who was here with us also, is positive. Uh, my concern is I don't have um, many symptoms for uh, the virus. However, I do have a mildly productive cough. Mm -hmm. I've never had a temperature. I've been taking my temperature since I found out she was positive. And, um, you know, so far so good. Mm -hmm. But then this past Monday... I passed out. Uh, paramedics came. All my vitals were strong. So I elected to not go to the hospital. But I'm just wondering, uh, is this a part of coronavirus? 
uh, should I have a Z-pack or is there something that I could take to help me with my energy because my energy has been extremely low. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Leslie, I I think you are asking a question that I have heard from lots and lots of people who, again, are pretty (laughs) sure that they may have been exposed to coronavirus, but they don't have symptoms that make it clear that they have, and they're Mm -hmm. wondering what what they should do to, to feel better, but also maybe to be more more certain. Uh, Dr. Messman, what, what's your advice for Leslie? Uh, there's, there's a couple questions in that story that I want to address. Um, the first is mm-hmm. regarding potential treatment, specifically a ZPAC. Um, in the hospital setting, we are not using azithromycin, which is the antibiotic in a ZPAC, um, mm-hmm. because if you combine it at any point with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which is that sort of investigational drug that may help to treat coronavirus, those two don't play together nicely. And so uh, we are not giving azithromycin to anyone that we suspect of uh, having coronavirus um, so that we don't have those two drugs interacting in the system. Um, additionally, just as a, an aside for people that are listening, and this is probably already in most people's brains, but do not take NSAIDs. Those are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, meaning ibuprofen, naproxen, uh, so Motrin, Aleve, those sorts of things. Only take Tylenol uh, because the NSAIDs have been found to make disease worse in coronavirus infection. So Tylenol only. Um, In terms of the symptoms that you're having, what we found very, very quickly is that Coronavirus infection sounded initially like it was just going to be respiratory in nature. And what we found was that patients were coming vomiting or diarrhea or generalized weakness or passing out, uh, which we call syncope, and testing positive for COVID-19 infection. So it is presenting in a very, very bizarre way in a lot of people. So your episode of passing out, absolutely, it could be it could be COVID-19 or it could be absolutely nothing, and there's no way to tell. Um, a way that people can get tested potentially is at the state fairgrounds. Um, you do need a doctor's order, and you do need to call and make an appointment ahead of time. It's not the sort of thing where you just show up, but you do get to stay in your car the whole time. Um, so you could theoretically go and get tested. Um, you know, the the sort of catch-22, though, is that there's no treatment. So you get tested and it's positive, it's, it's maybe a good piece of knowledge to have, but it doesn't mean that you get any sort of particular treatment. So generally, we're just telling patients to stay at home until they, unless they feel that they are having so much trouble breathing that they, they need medical attention or, or any other severe symptom that they think requires um, medical intervention. Okay. Uh, Dr. Ann Messman, an ER doctor here at a Detroit hospital. It was really great to have you here to answer these questions for our listeners. Uh, actually, I, I'm being told now by our producers that we're keeping you for uh, the oh, next cool. segment. <laughs> you're, you're not going anywhere. All right. We are going to take a quick break, though. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation and continue to take your calls, your medical calls for Dr. Ann Messman. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Kathleen in Detroit, Liz in Garden City. We'll get to you as well as others. If you also want to put comments on Facebook 
or on Twitter. We can uh, include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We are having a special edition of Detroit Today, today at 2 p.m. from 2 to 3, because we know there are so many questions out there about coronavirus, how you get it, what you should do to avoid getting it, uh, what you should not be doing right now to make sure that you aren't exposed and aren't exposing others. And there are also, of course, lots of questions about symptoms, things that people are experiencing, people, uh, things that people's relatives and friends are experiencing that they have lots of questions about. We have gotten doctors to join us here on the show to talk to you about those questions, to get you answers, actual information about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't. As always, the number here on the phone is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Right now, we're talking with Dr. Ann Messman. She's an ER doctor at a Detroit hospital, uh, and she is here to help uh, let you know what you should and shouldn't be doing. Let's go back to the phones here to Kathleen in Detroit. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, afternoon, and have a good evening. Yes, that's right. I'm calling <laughs> to um, ask a question about my um, situation. Okay, be, I went to Seattle, Washington um, in February the 19th, and I came back to Detroit on uh, the 24th. And before I had went, I had a cold. Mm -hmm. And just so happened that the week that I came back, that was the first case that was um, that had arose in um, the United States, you know, making this a, a pandemic. So um, my question is, I still have this phlegm in my throat, mm -hmm. and I can't seem to get rid of it. And I don't know if that's a... Is that a, one of the underlying underlying situations with this um, coronavirus? Yeah, that's a great question, Kathleen. You know, one of the things I keep saying is that, you know, it's flu season. Lots of people have the flu and are either experiencing those symptoms or just getting over it. It's also spring, which makes it allergy season for people like me. Uh, once things start to bloom and come up out of the ground again, I always get a little tickle in my throat this time of year. Uh, what, what about those kinds of symptoms, uh, Dr. Messman? Should we be concerned about them? Should we be doing something to, to try to either, uh, you know, determine whether those are COVID-19 related or things to, to maybe address them so that they'll go away and, and that we don't have to ask that question? Sure. Um, I think, you know, if you're somebody who's had standing issues with seasonal allergies and you know that this is a time of year that, that affects you and you're getting sort of your usual expected symptoms, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, also having, you know, a, a cough or a tickle in the throat, 
you know, for weeks after having had a cold or a, just your general viral infection is, is not unexpected either. Um, but, you know, if you're having symptoms that you think are unusual for you, it's going to be impossible to, to tell based on just history and, and without any testing whether you've got the flu, COVID-19 infection, a, a regular upper respiratory infection uh, from you know, any of the other zillion things that cause a common cold. It's going to be really, really difficult to tell. So, you know, we're very much um, imploring people to just be very conservative. Uh, hand washing is a huge thing. So if you cough, uh, you're supposed to use your inner elbow to cough into. But if, if you cough into your hand, obviously you need to wash your hands right away. And I think um, just based on what I'm seeing in the news over the past couple of days, uh, masks are going to be a big public health initiative mm -hmm. moving forward is what, is what it looks like. Um, but even now, you know, if you're coughing, the point of the mask is more to protect the coughing person from infecting other people as opposed to the mask wearer protecting themselves. Um, if that, hopefully that makes sense to people. So what I'm saying is that wearing the mask keeps those secretions inside the mask and doesn't spread them all over the air and surfaces and things like that. So if you are coughing, um, you know, if you live by yourself, then okay, that's that's fine. You have nobody to infect other than yourself. Um, but if you're with other people, um, certainly if you're going to go to the grocery store or something it, and you have access to a mask or, you know, a bandana or, or anything, it would be wise to put that over your face so that you don't spread whatever it is that you have to, to the community. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kathleen, I hope you feel better soon. And thanks very much for for listening and for calling and uh, for giving us your questions. Let's go next to Cecil in Royal Oak. Cecil, welcome to the program. Hi, Stephen. Thanks Hi. very much for having me. Um, thanks for your program in general. Thanks for this program in particular. And thanks very much to Dr. Messman for being on. Yes. Um, my question had to do with the doctor's mentioning of using Tylenol. Uh, excuse me, are you there? I'm yep, yeah, yeah okay, go ahead. Good. We're listening. Um, <laughs> my understanding, doctor, is that the fever of the body, of course, is an enhancement of our immune response. And so the use of Tylenol even, although it doesn't have the problems of the NSAIDs and cortisone and things like that, it still is reducing the body's response. And so I was curious about your you know, comments or opinion on that. Great question, Cecil. I'm glad you, you called and asked. Uh, what about suppressing fever as opposed to perhaps letting it take its course as a way of the body fighting infection? That's a great question. And uh, in the world of medicine, it's practically a philosophical question. Uh, do you treat a fever? Um, there's not a great answer, and you'll find people on, very educated people on both sides of that argument with very good reasons for why they think you should or should not treat a fever. Um, I fall into the camp of treating the fever. Um, my reason for that is, is one, it just, it makes the patient feel a lot better. You feel really miserable when you have a fever and the body aches that come with it and um, all of the other discomforts. Um, another is that fever causes you to lose a lot more fluids from your body than you would if you don't have a fever. So people can get more uh, dehydrated. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I like to treat fevers. But 
you know, you're going to have a lot of people, people could call into this show and, and perhaps even the next doctor that's going to speak might have a completely different opinion. And there's, there's not a right or wrong answer about whether or not to treat a fever. Well, and the other thing that occurs to me about this particular disease is that the fevers that people are having or experiencing are so high that they are themselves dangerous. I mean, it's one thing if you've got a fever of 100 or 101. I'm hearing about people with temps at 103 or 104. Those are really those are really dangerous, isn't that right? Absolutely, and we have seen really, really extreme, you know, 105 degree fevers, things like that that we don't typically see. And I, I am 100% on board. You know, when it's that extreme, it it really should be treated because that's dangerously high. Um, and your body is not meant to function at a temperature that high. And there's, you know, all sorts of bad things that can happen with yeah. your body running that hot for, for any amount of time. Yeah. Uh, Cecil, I appreciate the call uh, and the question. Uh, let's go to Jean in Detroit. Jean, welcome to the show. Are you there, Jean? Hi. Hi. Go ahead. Yes. So I was, um, uh, I think the, a couple questions earlier, um, they were talking about the mask mm -hmm. and that the mask is primarily, I guess, slated for the person that's coughing or sneezing to, um, you know, so their droplets won't get out into the atmosphere. So if someone else is wearing the mask, say, for example, I'm not coughing or sneezing, but someone else in my environment is, I'm not protected then with the mask by wearing it from <laughs> someone else's cough or sneeze. Yeah, that's a great question, Gene. Who's the mask for, right? Is it for the person who is already infected to not spread the disease, or is it also for the person who isn't infected to be protected from it? I, I, I think that's a great question. Dr. Mespin, uh, go ahead. Uh, so it's, it's both. It's largely um, advantageous for the person that's actively coughing to not spread their droplets everywhere. Um, it obviously, you know, having any sort of barrier between you and your environment is going to protect you to an extent. Um, you know, these just using a bandana or a non N95, N95s are those really specialized masks that we need so badly in the hospital. Uh, where, so wearing bandanas or non N95 masks do confer some degree of protection. Uh, but the problem is, is that viruses are really, really small. And so you have to have a mask that's able to filter these very small particles out. And your standard, uh, you know, mask that's not an N95 or a bandana is not going to do that. So it doesn't filter out nothing. It just, you know, isn't as effective as an N95 or um, an N99. Hmm. Okay, Dr. Ann Messman, it was really great to have you here with us to answer these questions for our listeners on Detroit today. Thanks for being here. Sure. Can I say one thing really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to make sure that the community is aware of how appreciative we are um, on the front lines. People have been texting, um, sending things in the mail. They bring food to the hospitals. Uh, people donate money. I mean, there's all sorts of things that the community is doing to show their appreciation. And I want to make sure the community knows that we see it, we hear it. It's keeping us alive, keeping our morale up and um it's, it's much, much appreciated. Yeah. Well, and again, thank you for everything that you're doing all the time, but especially at a time like this, which is unprecedented in any of our, our memories. Uh, so we really do appreciate everything you're doing and, of course, appreciate you being here with us. Sure. Thank you.
Up next, we're going to get to more of your questions with Dr. Raquel Orlick, who is a family doctor at Plum Health Direct Primary Care here in Detroit. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number to get your medical questions answered about the coronavirus. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. We're talking this hour about your medical questions about coronavirus, the things that you're not sure about what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, what symptoms you might have that you're not certain could be. COVID-19 related or symptoms that you're seeing in your family or your friends. We are having uh, this special edition of Detroit Today just to address those questions. And we've had physicians with us all hour to actually give you information, the kind of information that that you come to expect from places like WDET, where we are trying really hard to make sure that people are able to know what the truth is, and act on it during this pandemic. I want to welcome our next physician to this conversation. She is Dr. Raquel Orlick. She is a family doctor at Plum Health Direct Primary Care in southwest Detroit. Dr. Orlick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm hoping that I can help with any questions that you guys might have. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, if you have questions for Dr. Orlick, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, also, as always here on Detroit Today right now, we're asking you to call and just tell us how you're doing. Call and tell us how all of this is playing out in your life and in your world with your family? Uh, how is everyone doing? How are you doing with all of the, the inside uh, uh, time that we're spending, the time away from family and friends for many of us? Uh, I, I, I think this is an important time to be able to share those stories and connect with each other because we can't do it in the physical world. So again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, Dr. Orlick, before we go back to listeners, I want to talk a little about your practice, which has made some big changes uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you used to have about 20% of your patients via telemedicine before coronavirus. Now that is 90% of your visits. Talk about how that transition has been working. Yeah, that's correct. So um, we practice at um, an office that we per, um, where we provide direct primary care. So this is an office a little bit different than your average practice. Um, we offer a membership model for patients. Um, under this model, our patients have direct access to us uh, via text, email, and then they can come and see us whenever they like. So what's very unique about a practice is that, you know, before we were going through this pandemic, we were able to manage a lot of our patients' concerns over the phone um, via virtual visits. 
um, whether it be FaceTime or Skype visits, Zoom visits. Um, and then we'd also see them in person um, also for something that needed to be addressed in person. Um, but because of the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic that we have been experiencing, we've been trying to triage our patients as much as possible over the phone. And there are many reasons for that. Um, a big reason for that is because anytime any of our patients leave, the, leave their house and they come to our office, we are always worried about what potential exposures they may have. Um, you know, a lot of our patients might have a lot of chronic conditions, either lung conditions, heart conditions, um, high blood pressures, diabetes. So just the fact that they're leaving the house um, could put them at a risk of um, being exposed to the virus. Um, and then when they come in our office, we don't usually have a lot of patients in the waiting room um, because we do provide uh, somewhere around 30-minute appointments for our patients um, and usually don't have any wait times. Uh, but there is still a risk that could be posed for them to potentially um, be in, co- be in uh, contact with another patient that might be in the office. And then we worry about even ourselves. Um, knock on wood, we've all felt okay. Myself, my practice partner, Dr. Paul Thomas, and our medical assistant, Chris, um, we feel fine. However, we don't know if we are one of the um, asymptomatic carriers of the virus. So just having the patient come in, having that uh, direct contact with them, we're always potentially putting each other at risk for um, exposing the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, your practice is aimed at helping some of the area's most vulnerable people, people with chronic health issues, and your direct primary care model means you're directly supplying them with medication. How has that distribution, that distribution sort of changed during all of this? Yeah, so we still want to be able to provide those services for our patients. Um, We order our medications for wholesale price for our patients, so they're steeply discounted somewhere even up to the 90% percentile um, discounted from the pharmacy price. So it's really important that we are able to provide um, our medications for our patients. So being able to be present, being able to dispense the medications to them um, has been really important to us throughout this process, especially now that um, a lot of our patients may be out of a job. So it's really important that we provide these um, cost-effective measures for our patients. That being said, um, we do want to make sure that we're doing it um, or bring the medications to them in a safe way. So we've been offering some of our patients that we can either ship the medications to them. Um, We've been dispensing the medications and just handing them, uh, handing it out the door to them, trying to keep that um, six-foot distance from them. So we've been trying to be creative about how we can uh, provide our uh, medications to our patients still. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get back to listeners here. And again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Rosalind in West Bloomfield. Rosalind, welcome to Detroit today. Rosalind, I'm sorry. Hello. There you go. (laughs) Um, I uh, came down with a stomach virus on the 19th of March. And I want to know, I don't have any fever or anything. It's strictly a stomach virus. 
I want to know if the environment could carry other viruses during this uh, pandemic. Hmm. Uh, great question. Uh, mm-hmm. I, again, I think there are a lot of people who are having symptoms that are related to other kinds of illnesses that are around all the time, and they're confused and maybe fearful mm-hmm. that it might be coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's a great question. So, yes, we do concern, concern ourselves with COVID-19. Um, some patients have expressed that they do have um, GI symptoms associated with it. However, there are many viruses that uh, viruses or um, food poisoning um, or, you know, food sensitivities that could also um, give us the impression that we could have come down with a um, stomach bug or a virus. So, for instance, just um, the seasonal influenza um, can cause some GI disturbance, um, including diarrhea and vomiting and just an upset stomach. Um, we don't often see this with the common uh, common cold, rhinovirus, um, but also sometimes even we can ha- have a lot of, there could be food poisoning, so potentially you had some carryout that may have been sitting out for too long. Um, and there also sometimes there are some circulating um, stomach bugs. Sometimes people will notice they'll have some type of 24-hour stomach bug and they'll resolve. So definitely um, quite a few things that could cause similar type of symptoms, which sometimes can make it a little bit more difficult to discern what the actual etiology of your symptoms were being caused by. Uh, again, uh, Rosalind, I hope you feel better, and uh, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to Liza in Detroit. Liza, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm calling because I'm a foster parent, and currently I don't have any foster children. And yesterday my agency asked me to take a survey, and in that survey I was asked if I would take a child who was exposed to the COVID-19 and then also if I would take a child who was sick with the COVID-19. I'm also a teacher in Detroit and in fact in Southwest Detroit. And um, my principal said that there has been exposure at our school. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I wonder if maybe I have been exposed and if maybe I was asymptomatic and if I could take an antibody test and also, two-part question, um, uh, there's also, you know, I think, uh, mixed, mixed uh, opinions about whether one could actually be um, immune after, after right. having it. After having mm-hmm. had it, yeah. Liza, great questions. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Orlick, go ahead. I mean, first off, let me just say that's wonderful um, what you're doing, um, taking in foster children. Um, now... It's very well possible, that's correct, you could have been exposed to the virus um, just with teaching alone. Um, As it stands right now, we do not have the antibody test available. This antibody test, uh, we're hoping, we're keeping our fingers crossed, will be available within the next few weeks. Um, Once it is released, um, what it is supposed to be is a, a point of care test, so something that we can actually do in the office. Um, the test should take around 15 minutes to process. Um, we would have an idea of um, if there was an, a positive antibody. So an antibody would signify that you were exposed to the virus. 
So now um, we don't know when that test will be available. Um, we're definitely keeping our keeping our eyes peeled for when that may happen because that will be, we believe, will be a, definitely a game changer. Um, now, as far as immunity is concerned, um, this virus is so new, so we don't know. Um, according to C CDC, they don't really have um, any um, clear evidence yet to say whether there is immunity. Most viruses um, that we've seen in the past, you do develop uh, some type of immunity. How long does immunity last, we also don't know. So I think only time will tell whether um, we do develop an immunity and how long it may last. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, Liza, uh, thanks very much for what you're doing, and thanks for calling and asking those questions. Let's go to Martine in Wald Lake. Martine, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks, thanks so much for taking my call. Mm -hmm. I have a question about my husband who has had pneumonia twice um, but is now on a an NSAID for rheumatoid arthritis. It's meloxicam to be exact. Um, he is thinking that he should stop taking that because of the, I guess, possible complications or making the virus worse. Um, I'm think about that. Or should people just stay on the meds that they're on? He's mm. not exposed mm -hmm. to anything. He doesn't leave the house. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a good, and that's the right thing, Martin. And that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> that's right. Don't leave the house. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, though, Dr. Orlick. Uh, what, what should you do if you're taking medication for something like rheumatoid arthritis already? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and something that we've been um, talking with our patients um, about over the last few weeks. Um, as it stands right now, there are no clear studies to, so there have been some studies to suggest that the, um, the ibuprofen and other NSAIDs like meloxicam uh, may potentially um, increase the viral shedding in the body. Um, but then there also have been some studies to suggest that that's not so. Um, however, if your husband was taking the meloxicam, I would still say that as long as he's not having any symptoms of COVID-19, um, including muscle aches, um, fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, um, anything like that, I would still continue to take the medication. I can imagine if he went off of the medication, it, he would be very miserable. Mm. Um, I don't know if he would respond very well to Tylenol. He could consider trying it. Um, but if he's really miserable and he's not having any symptoms, I would, if he was my patient, I would recommend that he um, continue the medication. But I definitely do think that all things considered, with his history of pneumonia, I would um, definitely have him reach out to his primary care doctor to see what type of advice, what they might be able to tell him, or some type of guidance as far as surveillance and so making sure that we're keeping a close watch on any symptoms um, to make sure that if he is developing any type of symptoms at all, we're very quick to removing him off of it. Uh, but that's a you know that's a very challenging um, situation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dr. Raquel Orlick, a family doctor at Plum Health, direct primary care in southwest Detroit. It was great to have you here to answer our listeners' questions on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, and I'm, I hope uh, 
hope I was able to help with a lot of these concerns. I know it's just a, it's a very trying time, and we're all going to be able to get through this. We just have to continue to work together to socially distance so we can help our healthcare community. Yeah, yeah. Again, thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for being here with helpful answers for our listeners. 